Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers. I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know, our podcasts come in three different formats. We've our 10-minute lesson series where we take a topic and explain it and expand out on it in eight to ten minutes. We have our seminar series where we get the chance to listen back to presentations we've had at previous events. And then we have our interview series where we chat to a wide range of policy experts. And this week, it's one of those. Tomorrow, April 21st, 2023, marks Ireland's Country Overshoot Day. Now, to explain exactly what I'm talking about and the whole concept of Earth Overshoot Day, I was delighted to be joined by Dr. Alessandro Galli, coming all the way from Italy. He's the Senior Scientist and Director of the Mediterranean Programme with the Global Footprint Network. And he explains how this date has worked out, the history behind it, Ireland's country date, what that actually means. And then we discuss some of their policy proposals that they have then to help ensure that we move the date. There's lots of links attached in the notes. I would encourage anybody who's really interested in learning more to explore there. Really hope you enjoy this one. Thank you. I suppose I might begin where I always do, Alessandro, at the beginning. Uh, can you explain to me, I suppose, the Global Footprint Network? That's the organisation that you work for. We might begin there. Can you just give me a little flavour of the history and the work that you do with them, please? So Global Footprint Network is uh, an NGO. Um, we were created uh, or established, set up in 2003. So actually this year, we are celebrating our 20th uh, anniversary. And we are an international organization. Um, we have offices in a few different places. The, our main headquarters is in Oakland, California. And then we have offices in Geneva, in Italy, and in Japan. Um, so we work internationally. And basically, what we do as an organization, we try to provide data and tools so that people can take decisions that are consistent with the uh, limits of the planet. When I say people, I really mean like any type of person, like from the individual person who can understand what is the impact of its own lifestyle on the planet and therefore change its own behavior to uh, company leaders, sectors leader, or uh, mayor, um, countries, uh, so policymakers who may use this information to try to uh, shape a different economic model uh, for their countries. So this is in a nutshell <clears throat> what the organization um, does. And we have different regional uh, programs. I mean, me personally, I'm mostly responsible for our activities in the Euro-Mediterranean Euro region. Um, and we have, I would say, three main focus areas here in the Mediterranean Euromed region, which is the sustainability of food systems, the sustainability of tourism activities, and then education for uh, sustainability. And what well, this is in a nutshell, uh, what we do. Maybe something that I would like to add on this is that what we are trying to, to do is really to allow people to understand the physical reality of everyday actions. I think most people are 
kind of used to the monetary reality for them to pay for something uh, in euros, in pounds, uh, for uh, in dollars for products is normal, but it's less normal and less known that uh, everything we do also has an environmental cost. So we are we are trying to show what is the environmental cost of what we do every day and whether this cost is within the budget we have available or not. That, like that makes real sense. I, I flew recently a very short flight from here in Ireland to uh, the north of England and I was chatting to the guy behind me in the queue because basically we, we were out on the tarmac in the freezing cold and the rain waiting to get on this flight and I had said to him God this isn't what we thought air travel was going to be in the 21st century and he said well to be fair his flight had cost him 16 pound and his bag cost him 20 pound and I thought exactly that I thought in no way does that price of the flight reflect anywhere the cost of the flight? So it's exactly that point, being able to join those two things together. Yes, I mean, there are... <laughs> I use at one point to go very frequently from uh, where I live in Italy to our office in Geneva. And going by train will cost uh, three to five times more than going by flight. Yeah. I would say one of the positive, let's say, afterthought that COVID has left is that uh, flights now seems to cost uh, way more than train. And I mean, this is how it should be <laughs> to, to some extent. So I think this is like, a, if we want like a positive uh, leftover uh, from, from the pandemic. And it's interesting because I was only reading at the weekend that surge We've gone off topic already, but that surge in sleeper trains now across Europe. So connecting up major European capitals that you'll get on, you'll have your dinner, you'll go to bed, you'll wake up, you'll have your breakfast and you're there. And as you said, we're, we're, we're tuned into the financial costs of things, but not necessarily the impact that we have. And I suppose that goes right the way across the clothes we wear, the, the conversation we're having now across I don't know how they do it across fiber networks or whatever like that there's, there's a cost to all of that like so I pay my zoom subscription you pay your zoom subscription that's all I think of I don't actually think of the the environmental impact of the conversation that we're having and then all of the downloads that happen all across the world of people listening to this conversation as well there's going to be an impact for that so even though they access that information for free there is a there's an impact on it somewhere else in the line so it is really important, I suppose, that we start to to join those dots, isn't it, and make those connections. Yeah, I would say sometimes we are, I mean, often we are accused to uh, to depict a very doom situation. Uh, I mean, it's not that we like to scare people with numbers, but I think it's very important to understand that everything we do as an impact on the planet. I mean, literally everything, even the most environmentally friendly activities, to some extent, are either demanding some resources, causing CO2 emissions. So what, what we do has, let's say, what we do has a relationship with the planet. This relationship with the planet can be uh, a light one, very environmentally friendly, or can be 
uh, an heavy one, uh, very polluting and very resource demanding. So we think that it's very important for people to know what the cost, the environmental cost of activities are. Sometimes it's scary, but at the same time, it's not that by pretending you don't know, these things don't happen. So um, unfortunately, we are seen as those uh, bringing uh, the negative message, but uh, we are really trying to uh, instead to, to bring an empowering message uh, to also show that there are alternatives and these alternatives have uh, a lower impact. Uh, I also want to say, I mean, connected to what we were saying before, and again, we are, I'm, I'm putting you off topic, uh, it's not just the cost uh, of things, for instance, that have derailed our um, way of traveling towards uh, flights compared to train, but I think it's also an evolution of society in which everything is fast. Everything needs to happen immediately, and we are always running somewhere, and for some reason, we believe that the more we do, the more efficient we are, the better it is. Uh, and in reality, I mean, I'm seeing those who are rediscovering in the past year and a half uh, traveling by train. They are not just looking at the environmental aspect of traveling by train, but also at the pleasure of traveling by train, meeting people, speaking with people, seeing the landscape. And, and I think what, where I want to go is that we should really question ourselves whether our idea of well-being is correct. Because uh, what makes us happy, I think, is heavily influenced by what others, let's say for now, make us think that is the dream and the desire and the standard of high quality of life. That is, that's so weird because I've just been reading a book about the American dream and the history of the American dream. And it started out originally as kind of anti, um, you know, anti-wealth and anti-gathering of wealth. And there was a line in it, which, I mean, this is from 1914. So even this concept of, um, you know, that uh, that kind of constant accumulation of things. Uh, I had it marked here. So it's a, a, a journalist called Walter Lippmann from 1914. And he's talking about, um, yeah, Lippmann deplored what he called America's fear economy of unchecked capitalism. So it is it's that thing of it's just fear of being left behind, fear of, not keeping up with, with what people tell you you should have, um, suggesting that the nation's dream of endless progress would need to be restrained because it was fundamentally illusory. And that's that's really it, isn't it? Like this unchecked progress, this constant growth, it doesn't make sense. And it you know, when you look at graphs, you look at economist graphs, you look at, you know, it's always this arrow that points from the bottom left to the top right, but you're kind of going, well, that, that can't continue. Like what happens when we run out of page? You know, that can't continue constantly. As you said, we need to sort of sit back and kind of go, well, actually, when when we've reached the limits of our growth, I don't I mean, I know we weren't going to have a conversation about degrowth or no growth, but but that is part of it, that um there has to be a limit to 
like as a human being, there's a limit to how big I can grow and still be healthy. So it's the same with, with, with the planet. There is a limit to what we can do and still be able to replenish, which I suppose leads me then into this concept of Earth Overshoot Day and putting numbers on things. How did that concept arise? Where did that come from? It's a really interesting idea, I think. Okay, I, I will touch on this in one second. Uh, yeah. if, if it's not a, an issue with you, I want to pick up on something yes. like to, to close this conversation because okay, recently I have been rereading some of the work of uh, Herman Daly, which is one of the father of ecological economists. And in reading his work, uh, I also came across, um, let's say, uh, the work of uh, Maslow on the hierarchy of needs. So it's a book from 1943, and it's quite interesting how he is defining uh, the needs of humans like a pyramid. You have the basic needs, and the basic needs are basically physiological needs. We need to have food, we need to have water, we need to have like a, let's say, a warm place where to stay. Uh, then there are safety needs. And then as you go up, you start to have more psychological needs. So the need to feel uh, esteem, the feel of accomplishment. And on top of these, there is, let's say, the, the self-fulfillment and more aspirational uh, needs. So I, I think, I mean, he's making the case that as you start fulfilling the basic need, you are always wanting more. No? So you go up on this hierarchy. So there is never, let's say, uh, an end to the desire uh, and to the needs that we what, that we want to have. But I think it's quite interesting to really maybe <clears throat> in nowadays society in which our needs seems to be very material, to bring back some understanding of uh, more uh, spiritual or if not spiritual unmaterial uh, needs of the of the human being now having said that <laughs> and going back to uh, to overshoot day um the the idea of the overshoot day well <clears throat> let's say originates from um, a bit of a long journey no because as uh, and uh, as an organization, so as I said before, Global Footprint Network was funded in 2003, but uh, the ecological footprint, the concept around which we work, was created uh, as part of the PhD thesis of our president, Mathis Wackernagel, together with uh, his professor at uh, British Columbia University, back then, uh, William Rees. So initially, uh, it was really mostly, uh, let's say, a concept, and then there were initial application in a few uh, case studies, some city in Santiago del Chile, some, uh, some countries. But then since really the early 2000s, we started uh, Matis and then Global Footprint Network when the organization started, we started to have uh, a kind of regular um, assessment of the ecological footprint and biocapacity of all countries of the world. Uh, I think in, in our original idea, we wanted to create uh, an environmental accounting equivalent of 
GDP. You know, each country has the system of national accounting that is producing GDP. So we wanted to create a system of national footprint and biocapacity accounting. I say footprint and biocapacity because we always say ecological footprint, but in reality, we measure two different indicators. It's like a scale. No? On one side, we have the ecological footprint, which is measuring our demand for the planet resources. On the other side of the coin, we have biocapacity. Biocapacity is a different metric that measure the planet's supply of these resources for us. Okay, So when we say we produce these national footprint accounts, in reality, we produce a system of supply and demands. It's, we are basically producing ecological balance sheets for all countries of the world for the last 50 years. Now, this information allows us to understand uh, globally as humanity if we are overusing or underusing the planet uh, natural capital. We are basically uh, finishing the, the resources, the budget for the year. So something that I would like to clarify is that so these footprint and biocapacity are actually measures of the annual flows of resources. I make an easy example. So if we have a bank account, okay, our bank account, there is stock of money, okay? These money that we have in the bank account are generating every year some revenues. Is the interest, probably very limited interest that the banks are giving us, but so the, 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 the monetary uh, stock of capital that we have produce an income for us, interest. So at the same time, we as individual spend money. Now, if we think at this example, but on a biophysical viewpoint, our planet is rich in resources. So as a stock of natural capital, this stock is producing an annual flow of resources, which we measure with the biocapacity. And we as humans, we use these resources. So we can use the entire annual flow and therefore we will be sustainable if we were living, let's say, within the annual budget. Or if we use more, it means that we are using the annual budget plus we are using a little bit of the stock. Now, the situation is that as of the early 70s, we have been using more than the annual budget. So every year we have used the income from natural capital plus a little bit of the stock. This means that we are accumulating a debt with the planet and we are overusing the stock year after year, putting at risk the capacity of this stock to continue generate resources. So if you take all of this information, and you apply at humanity level during the year, we can basically calculate the day of the year in which we have finished the budget for the year. And we are starting to, let's say, eat into the stock of resources. The global overshoot day then for 2022 is sometime in July. Was that right? Yes, it was July 28. Okay, yeah. and then for 2023 then? For 2023 is, 
I mean, we are going to release this information on the 5th of June on the occasion of Environment Day. But I mean, I would expect to be sometimes around that uh, okay. date, if not uh, earlier than okay. July 28th. Okay. So as you said, th there won't have been too many big changes in, in that year um, to sort of push it out. And then you also do country overshoot days, which I find really fascinating because you've got these wild variations as you go around the globe. I'll, I'll make sure to put a, a link to this graphic in, in the notes because I think this really sums it up. So you've got a picture of the globe. And then if we start, say, on February 10th with Qatar and February 14th with Luxembourg. What the country, so if you take the Earth Overshoot Day, mm -hmm. the Earth Overshoot Day looks at humanity, you know, and is telling us as humanity, with our current lifestyle, which is very different uh, mm -hmm. in different places of, of the planet. Uh, in 2022, we had finished the budget for the year on the 28th of July. So since July 29th, we started to use, let's say, the stock of resources. And this is a global situation. Then when we go into country overshoot day, the country overshoot day is basically indicating when humanity would have finished the entire budget for the year if all of us on the planet had the lifestyle of Qatar person, Luxembourg residents, uh, Austria, Belgium, and so on. Okay. So on that calculation, we assume that Say if everyone had the lifestyle of that individual, of that specific country. And the idea uh, behind is to shed light about how unequal the lifestyle and the access to resources is, and also how um, unequal also is the yeah, also resource requirement of different lifestyles. Uh, and and so here we can make some um, discussion and debates around these dates, but it's it's good that we clarify first what this uh, what this means. Yes, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, and as you said, it is stark then that February tenth and fourteenth, and then you you go right the way around and December twentieth. Then so if everybody lived the way that people in Jamaica live. What you're saying is that we would have we would nearly be at parity we would nearly be at, at a balanced planet but there's so many countries there's much more countries in the first half of the year than there are in the second half of the year anyway yes i think what there are also several countries that do not have an overshoot day mm. because so uh, let's step one second back now uh, so what is let's say at global level, the, the ecological footprint and the biocapacity of an average person. So if we take all the resources that there are on the planet, we prefer to speak of resources in terms of hectares of land. So we don't uh, speak about tons of material and so on, but we, we speak about bioproductive land. So if we take all the surface of the planet that is bioproductive, and we divide these by the more than 7 billion people that we are on the planet. So we know that globally we have a per capita quota of 
resources. So our biocapacity is about 1.6 hectares per person. But when we look at how much on average we demand, we demand about 2.8 uh, hectares per person. So that's why there is this disconnect. Now, there are countries um, in which the per capita ecological footprint is lower than the 1.6 uh, hectares per person of biocapacity. Now, I'm, I'm saying hectares now for you and for who is listening us, but the unit of measure of the ecological footprint is actually like global hectares or hectare equivalent unit. Uh, I think it's like, I don't want to go into the details of yeah. these. I think for the time, for, for us today, just let's assume it's yeah. like hectares of land and people yeah. can read if they want to understand more what this is about. But in essence, it's like, when we compare the GDP of countries around the world, mm -hmm. we compare GDP of countries by using US dollars. Yeah. We don't compare the GDP of Italy in Euro with the GDP of UK in pound, with the GDP of Japan in, in uh, yen. No, we, we all use the same unit of measure. So this global hectare is intended to be this normalized uh, unit of measures. So there are countries on the planet that consume less but unfortunately, um, we have a very interesting graph that maybe we can also put, I can send to you and you can put in the chat, is obtained by connecting the ecological footprint of countries with the human development index of countries. So it's basically a graph that is showing on the horizontal axis human development, the level of human development as measured by the UN, so this is an index, again, measured by the UN, uh, and is a function of GDP, life expe expectation, and access to literacy. Uh, and then on the vertical axis, we imagine the ecological footprint, so how many hectares of land are necessary by um, residents in each country. Ideally, what do we want to have is a high quality of life, so a very high human development index, within the limits of the planet, so with a low ecological footprint. There is almost no country that meets these two requirements. So we either have countries that live a very good life and have a very high quality of life. These could be like these are European countries, but they do this at the expense of a very high demand on the planet resources. So on average, and here we can link to Ireland, for instance, an average Irish person has a footprint of more than five hectares of land, which is like more than three times higher than the per capita shared quota of resources. So very high quality of life, but the, at the expense of a high environmental cost. And then we have the other side of the spectrum where we have countries with a very low ecological footprint below these fair share quota of 1.6 global hectares, but unfortunately they have very poor uh, quality of life. And, and therefore, um, I mean, what you will want to have is a recipe for a good quality of life without consuming so many resources. And here again is where you can start, for instance, comparing the lifestyle of European and the lifestyle of Americans. 
we have both a very high quality of life, but as Europeans, we use on average about half of the hectares of land than Americans in order to maintain this, uh, this quality of life. So not necessarily a low ecological footprint is something that a country would want to have. It must be coupled with high uh, human development. And that's the challenge really, isn't it, for places like Europe and, and the USA where you have this access to services, access to travel, access to consumer goods. We are now accustomed to having electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're accustomed to having running water 24 hours a day. So, you know, basic enough things that weren't always basic enough things, but we now take them for granted. So we want to be able to continue to live exactly the same way but and don't want to sacrifice anything. So we don't really want to change the way we live our lives. So it will it will have to be a conversation of, as you said, supporting those same lifestyles in a different way. So how do we generate store and share electricity, those kind of things. And I know you took you had touched on um on Ireland there. So Ireland's day, Ireland's global overshoot day is tomorrow, which is Friday the 21st of April. So again, just so I get it straight in my head. That's the, so. If everybody in the entire world lived the way that we do in Ireland, which as you said is the five hectares, we would have used up all of those resources by by April, which is quite shocking. Like it's very quick in the year. I mean, we're only just getting our heads around the fact that it's twenty twenty three, and to be told already that well, you've used up all your stuff. You know what I mean? You're going to have to tighten your belt from here on in. Like it is quite shocking. Yeah, I, I have like several reflection on these. The immediate one I want to say is like, imagine you are the general director or like the um, um, the DG of um, of a big company, no? And you are told that like from the forecast of the year, you are going to spend all the budget of your organization tomorrow but you still have like eight months, more than eight months to go. Yeah. Now, as let's say from a financial point of view, everyone will sweat. They will be very anxious because of this situation. I mean, we are close to bankrupt, no? As a business, okay? But from the environmental point of view, these understanding, these uh, fact that Tomorrow, if everyone, by tomorrow, if everyone live like um, Irish people, we would have finished humanity, the, the budget for the year that humanity has. It doesn't really make us wet in the same way because, because this lifestyle or this way of consuming that we have is possible because somewhere else on the planet, someone else is using way less, is experiencing the uh, shortcomings or uh, the consequences of the impact that we are causing on the planet. And also, very importantly, because it's not so immediate to feel on ourselves the consequence of a resource overuse of a, or of a climate emergence. No, I mean, if we are without money, if we run out of money tomorrow, 
on Saturday, we will have problem going to shop. But this immediate impact on our personal life on Saturday, we are not going to, to feel it because the stock of natural capital in the planet is so big that although we are depleting it, it still somehow makes up to some extent for our needs. And so we don't experience immediately these consequences. However, I would say if people start to connect the dots, we can already see that prices of resources are increasing. You go shopping, you pay more for resources than you were doing 10 years ago, probably. This is happening in Italy. I don't know if it's happening in Ireland as well, but is is happening, uh, I would say, generally across Europe. When we hear in the summer, um, again, this is in the Mediterranean, uh, is now, uh, I mean, it's always very popular news, this is the hottest summer in the last five decades. Now we have heard this for three years in a row. And I mean, sometimes joking people say this is the coolest summer that we are going to have in the next 20 years, which is to say this is like what is going to, uh, what we are going to face in the next year. Uh, if you start to think at the how many days are characterized by extreme weather events that were completely unpredictable maybe 20 years ago. Then we start, maybe we can understand that we are starting to feel the equivalent of not having the money to shop on, uh, on Saturday if we went bankrupt as a family or as company. So these are all signs that are indicating us that we are approaching to some extent the, the limit of what can be considered uh, a stable earth system. So we are destabilizing uh, the system, the house, let's say, that host us, our planet. And there are several studies that are indicating that if this is destabilized beyond certain threshold, then going back to a stable situation will not be uh, that easy. Uh, please allow me to say one thing on what we were saying before. No, we are consuming too many resources. Uh, I think what we also need to communicate to people is that we are wasting many resources because many, I mean, oftentimes, uh, in the words of environmentalists, in uh, what we say, what journalists say, may be read and understood by people like, oh, we need to go back to the lifestyle that we had uh, many years ago. No? And so they want to um, force people to have a, a lower quality of life. But if we look at what's going on, uh, sometimes most of these views it is actually a waste. So in US is a very typical uh, procedure um, to leave uh, most of lights uh, on at night for security reason, for other reason. That is an energy that we don't need to use. So by saving on that energy, we are not, let's say, uh, worsening our quality of life. 
Similarly, sometimes because we don't pay water, the real cost of water, we just waste tap water or we buy food and we waste food. I mean, imagine that about 30% of the crops that exist on the planet are cultivated to produce food that ends up being wasted. So I think it's very important that we communicate the fact that a lot of the resources that we are using are misused. So they could be used differently without necessarily lowering our quality of life. Now, is working on the waste enough? This is another question. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just the image I had there, as you said, that, you know, we're, we're constantly taking and constantly replenishing. But if I'm building a wall and you're taking out bricks from the bottom, um, that is going to reach a point where the whole thing is going to collapse. So, you know, it is it's, it's that point, I suppose, and we don't know when it is and we don't know when it's going to come. But if we do get to a stage where something you know that, that kind of critical mass where um i don't know maybe a certain crop becomes extinct or one one particular animal becomes extinct and sets off this chain i mean i know we've talked about bees and stuff like that in the past it was a you know a, a big concerted effort because an awareness of these tiny tiny insects but the impact that they have on the, the whole chain so as you said, it's just that that joined up thinking, I think, is really is really the key here. And and I know when um and I suppose that's that's what I kind of found fascinating as well was was the solutions part of the work that you do and the policy proposals that you have. So it isn't just a case of, well, here's the numbers to show how wrong things are and how bad things are, but at least you're turning around saying, well, actually, here's the things that you can do. And that's so important to be able to to, to put policy proposals and um the one I, I would like to start on, if possible, is the population one, because I just think this is so interesting. And if I'm going to quote from this website, mostly overlooked by the mainstream media, however, is the compelling evidence for one of the most effective ways of tackling resource constraints and climate change is girls' education. And that worldwide, there's 130 million girls out of school. And I just thought that was such an interesting angle to come at um, a climate change conversation or a, a, a degrowth or a, I don't know what kind of conversation, you know, this is, but just changing the world for the better and that allowing us to live within our limits and looking at girls' education and the, 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 the ripple effect that that would have across the world, I just thought was brilliant and really interesting. Can you expand a bit on that for me? I think there's um, a very, for me, very useful framework to think at our impact as human species no? on, on the planet. Uh, and and the, this framework, this concept is known as the HIPAT equation. And this is a very conceptual uh, theoretical framework, which was um, put together uh, in the 70s by Paul Elrich and John Aldrin. Uh, basically what it, it tells this equation is that the human, well, sorry, the impact, our impact as a species on the planet, I, is a factor of three things, P, A, and T. That's why I part the question. P is population, how many we are on the planet. A is affluence, 
how much we consume, how much each one of us consume, and T is technology. So how efficiently or using low input of resources and causing or releasing very limited amount of CO2, we are producing things. So overall, in general, our impact as species on the planet is determined by how much we consume, how efficiently we produce what we consume, and how many we are. Uh, if you take like a very easy example, if there is a birthday party and we have, I will use a pizza as an example because I'm Italian, okay? Not, not the usual <laughs> cake. So we have a pizza in the middle. If at the birthday party we are 10 people, okay, it's one slice each. Then suddenly the year after we celebrate again and we have grown, we are 20 people. The year after we have grown again and we are 40 people. These slice, we are still getting a little bit of it, but like smaller and smaller. And what we have seen is that, I mean, what we have seen, what we know in 1961, so our ecological footprint and biocapacity accounts cover right now a period from 1961 to 2018. In 1961, there were slightly more than 3 billion people on the planet. Now we have passed, I think, seven and a half billion people. So we have more than double. Uh, now, I know that, I mean, we did a study on these uh, back in 2008, was one of my first write-up uh, for Global Footprint Network and was in the context of the Leading Planet Report we produced with WWF. Some of the comments was, WWF and GFN are suggesting we kill people. Now, we are not suggesting we kill people, okay? But we are just indicating that how many we are, it is an element in the equation of our impact on the planet, which we cannot ignore. And as you were reading before, there are several studies now that have shown by that by educating people, by educating girls, we can improve their quality of life. We can improve their access to a better life, a better salary, better jobs, while at the same time, let's say, reducing the population growth. Now, I think there are different worldviews uh, on, on all of the aspects that I mentioned in this iPad question, uh, depending on who you speak to. Uh, because if you speak about population, uh, from many viewpoints, population is seen as an asset, as a resource. I mean, in many low-income countries, uh, having more childs means the capacity to have uh, other people that can uh, bring an income, okay? If you think at our old societies in Europe, uh, having more young people have a growing, uh, let's say, working population is something that we probably need in order to be able to pay the pension of the people who retire. So... From certain viewpoints, population is seen as an asset, as something that is positive. But when you look at, at the role that 
how many of us are on the planet play in terms of our overall resource demand, we cannot avoid to recognize that this is a factor contributing to uh, our impact on the planet. But the same can be said for technology. There are many people that believe that only by reducing waste or by increasing the efficiency, the technology of how we produce things, it will be enough to live within the limits of the planet. There are other schools of thoughts, and here is, for instance, the, the all the degrowth, post-growth uh, movement, which are kind of indicating that given the numbers at play today, only reducing waste and increasing efficiency, increasing technology will not be enough. So if that is not enough, this means that we also need to change something. So going back to our example, maybe it's not just a matter of avoiding to waste energy, resources, and water, but it's also a matter of rethinking how we use these, uh, these resources. It's very hard to, to say which one is correct. Okay, uh, I mean, uh, I, I see numbers, and from the numbers I see, I find it very, very hard to be convinced that only an improve in technology and inefficiency will allow us to live with the current lifestyle, with the current population size of humanity. Uh, if, of course, um, we want to live in a stable climate, if we accept to live in a very unstable planet mm -hmm. in which one day you have 50 degrees, the other day two meters of rain, and I mean, houses are flooded, that, that is also a reality. Yeah. But is it like a good reality we want to live? No. So we need to find a solution playing around these three variables. What we consume, how we produce, how many we are. And as you said, trying to fit that then into the into that kind of human development index, like trying to overlay that onto the other graph so that people can have as good a quality of life as possible with the lowest uh, impact on the planet as possible. So that, that's quite a big ask, really, isn't it? When you, there's a lot going on there. And the other four headings then for policy proposals, the, the one was cities. Um, and again, like, I suppose it's about moving the date, really, isn't it? So the, looking to see, like, moving that date back from, from the middle of the year, or in Ireland's case, April, and trying to move it sort of further out so that we use less a, along the year. And the, the statistics and stuff that I took off the website was, if we reduce our footprint from driving by 50% around the world, assume one third of car miles are then replaced by public transportation and the rest by biking or walking, that we could move uh, Earth Overshoot Day back by a, whole, a full 13 days. But I mean, again, that sort of cities conversation is quite interesting because, again, you can see across the world that more and more and more of us are, are living in cities. And the um, the expectation is that uh, yet, yet even more of us will be living in cities. So that's a really important conversation to have around how we organise our cities and how we function in cities. If I remember correctly, two years ago, that um, we reached the 50-50%. Um, what I mean by this is that 
two years ago, uh, I mean, historically, no, people have mostly lived on the countryside. And then urbanization has been increasing for the past uh, decades. In 2020, we reached a point uh, in which the urban population was as big as the rural population. And of course, in the past two, three years, um, I think we can safely assume that the urban population has increased further and therefore now is like bigger than the rural population. Uh, when we look at the estimates of population from now till 2050, I think some of the most robust UN projection are speaking of nine to 10 billion people. Now these additional two to and a half billion people are expected to be located in cities, most likely in cities that are yet to be built. Why I say yet to be built? Because there is impact that we can make by retrofitting our current cities but there is also a bigger impact that we can make by changing uh, how we plan cities. Now, of course, retrofitting Rome or Siena um, or Dublin is not as easy as creating a city from scratch, you know, where with urban planning, you can really design something different. Why I'm saying this? Because, I mean, we are, in our website, um, overshouldday.org, there is a section called Power of Possibility, which is the one you were referring to. So over there, we really try to collect all the existing solutions that could help us move the date. These solutions are, in most cases, uh, really like working right now at a small scale, but could have a big impact if scaled up. Now. Solutions like shifting to bikes uh, or car sharing within cities do have an impact. In the case of bike, it could be like postponing overshoot day by nine days. Uh, if we were to car share, it's an impact of three days. But if, if we were to redesign cities with this idea of the compact cities, like 15 minute uh, walkable cities, where basically you have everything you need around you in the walking distance of 15 minutes, you completely, let's say, get rid of the need to travel. This, of course, it doesn't mean that we don't want people to travel, yeah. but who wants to stay stuck in traffic like it happens in Rome two, two hours every day to go to work and back? I mean, that is not like a pleasure uh, or a pleasant uh, travel. No, that is like a very unpleasant commuting. So changing how we design cities to avoid these two hours commuting every day is going to increase our quality of life, is going to decrease our impact on the planet. So I think it's very, very important that we focus on how cities are designed, but also on how food is brought into cities. Because it's not the case of Ireland. Ireland is like a outlier in Europe, but for all other countries except Ireland and maybe another couple of uh, EU 27 countries, um, food 
is the main footprint driver. And by food, I mean the entire food system, how we eat, but also how we produce and bring to our tables the food that we eat. So also this is very important that is going to be taken into account in the planning of cities. Just uh, Food is another heading then, just to, that ties quite nicely into it. Um, and as you mentioned, I mean, Ireland is pretty much uh, kind of food, uh, what would you call it? Um, we can feed ourselves. I think that's, I, don't, I can't mm-hmm. think of the proper term for it. But that's, uh, like some self-sufficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there were lots of conversations, you know, around Brexit and stuff like that about uh, food supplies and stuff like that. So that was a big conversation here. Yeah. But you know, and you mentioned food again at the very beginning of the conversation when you looked at food tourism and education as three three of the key areas. But food is also one of the headlines here. And again, it is about things as you said about food waste uh, moving towards more of a vegetarian diet. Um, all of those things, they are all they do all tie together, don't they? That is it some reflection that we have been having internally and also like uh, stimulated or triggered by some of questions that we have received. Um, if you look at some of the uh, solutions that we post on our website, some of these solutions are very small, very small. I mean that they move let's say, upscaling them systemically across, let's say, all societies, all economies, maybe would make an impact of one or two days. Mm. Um, and therefore, sometimes this is seen as, okay, why, why should I do that? No, because it's just like one day. But I think the main point and, and message to take here is that sustainability is literally around everything we do in our daily life. We cannot think that sustainability is just about uh, how we produce energy on how we move around in cities. Uh, sustainability is not just about climate change, it's also you, uh, about use of land, about use of water and so on. So in order to have a more sustainable society, unfortunately, there is no silver bullet. There is no one magic solution uh, that basically will help us uh, go back within the limits of the planet. But the, let's say, sustainability will be achieved through a puzzle, a combination of many different alternative ways of of doing things and can be how we move around, how we power our houses, um, how we feed ourselves, how many of us we are, so therefore how we educate uh, people. So I think it's really a combination of all uh, that will allow us to go back to, uh, let's say, the limits of the planet. Now, here the big question is whether we do have the political will to scale up all of these uh, solutions and really implement uh, at the scale that is needed. And and this remains a question mark. Uh, I must say that if we look at some of the environmental policies of the EU, they are uh, way ahead 
of many other regions and countries. But then uh, the most visionary uh, or the most positive uh, policies always receive a lot of pushback from, from countries. I mean, it's of just a few weeks ago, um, the, the pushback on uh, selling cars uh no diesel uh, that are let's say operated with fossil fuels after 2030 i think or 2035 which was not banning completely these type of cars but only banning the sale of new cars with this technology and there have been an incredible pushback on these so i think we we need to really think at how much this is needed and how much we are prepared because I don't want to blame only the policymakers. I'm, I'm also wondering whether society is ready mm. to this type of, of shift. I have heard uh, in a conference um, a few weeks ago, the previous um, commissioner for the environment of the, uh, of the European uh, Commission, uh, he was speaking about the need to completely change um, our concept of economy. And it was making a very simple example. Um, so we are all attached to the idea of we need to own a fridge. But if we really ask what ourselves, what we need, we don't need to have a fridge, to own a fridge. We need to be able to uh, own the service that the fridge does for us, which is to keep our food at the right temperature so that it doesn't deplete. So we don't really need to own the fridge itself, yeah. but we have a model in which we need the fridge and we buy the fridge because we buy the fridge. The producers are selling us fridge and they have an interest in design this fridge so that they, let's say, go uh, rot, no rotten, that they, yeah, they don't function yeah. any, anymore yeah. uh, in a few years time, no? Yeah. Because the cost of buying a new fridge mm. is on us. Yeah. But if we were to shift this approach and we were to rent mm. fridges, so the business model will not be for the producers to sell fridge, but to sell the refrigeration service, yeah. then it will be their cost to replace fridge. And therefore, they will have an interest in designing fridges that last way longer. Okay? So I think this is like a, is a very, let's say, simple example that to me... Uh, summarize in a nutshell the the kind of shift we need to have in our in our mindset i mean where i live it's like a small unit where three family lives and we have three different uh, washing machines but we are not using <laughs> them every day you know so why do we need to own them because someone make us believe yeah, <laughs> that we need them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when I think, like, again, Ireland in the sort of 70 and 80s, when I think back, you didn't own a TV. You rented a TV. That was the traditional model. If anybody had a house, 
there was, uh, I, I'm sure I can probably, you know, the name or brand name now, they're long gone. But oh, I remember RTV in Fibsport, I think it was, and you went down and you paid your rent for a TV. So owning a TV wasn't something that, that people did. You know, it was for, for working class households, you rented a TV. And as you said, exactly that, the model then, the business model then, would really have been, um, it wouldn't have been based on obsolescence and built in obsolescence. It would have been, we need to design a TV that's going to last a long time. But even that kind of fashion thing as well, as you said, like a TV from the 70s, even if it still works now, it would be the size of probably this box room. Like there were huge, big, bulky things. So we're constantly being told we need to, you know, we need to refresh, we need to change designs and all of those kind of things. But I think you're right. I think it's going to have to be this huge conversation about how we live our lives. And, and when you touch on policy makers, I often think as well, there's this presumption that if we do nothing, you know, these changes are going to cost. They're going to cost too much money. But the presumption then is always that there's no cost to inaction. Of course, there's a cost to inaction. If we do nothing, that's going to more than likely, like, like the wall that I'm trying to build as you're pulling bricks out from underneath it, that's going to cost more in the long run. Find that aspect of it quite fascinating, that short-sightedness. So I am going to put a link up to the solutions bit separately onto the notes as well, because there's so, as you said, there's so much in there. I wanted to just touch off the next generation. There's lots of resources there for classrooms, um, which I think is a really interesting idea. So again, trying to get this conversation into classrooms and trying to get this conversation to be had by, by younger people. I presume that was a very deliberate decision to take to, to have separate resources for, for younger people. And here there are, let's say, we, we need to work on two levels. On one side, we need to work with the current generation because in the end, the people in school that will become the leader of tomorrow will be the leader of tomorrow when it may be too late hopefully not but i mean if not too late the situation will be for sure uh, let's say more difficult than now so on one side we are working with the current or the, the the decision makers of today but at the same time we have uh we we have also been investing a lot in uh developing material for um i would say for the young people, but in general for uh, any kind of audience. I mean, the most popular tool that we have and that we are offering offering to people is the personal footprint calculator. I mean, we have more than um, four and a half million people, different million, uh, users every year that are using this calculator. Um, a couple of years ago, we ran an analysis to understand who is using it most. And then we discover that uh, about 50%, uh, if not more, of the users are um, students, are, let's say, people uh, between, I mean, maybe 18 and 24, 30 years old, that are using these um, in their classes at school. And so we, we started to realize how popular this tool is. Uh, and that's why we basically created a consortium with um, four uh, European universities. So the, the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece, and then the University of Siena in Italy, and two universities in uh, Portugal. University of Aveiro and Universidade Aberta of Lisbon 
to develop uh, a, a few tools. Uh, but the main two one I want to mention here is like a module to teach about sustainability in a very simple and interactive way. It is very hands-on, full of games and exercise uh, because the intent really is, I don't want to teach people about sustainability. I want people to realize what sustainability is yeah. and how it affects every day, everything we do every day. And then, so these, we developed this module. I mean, we have created a separate website for these. The project is called EU Steps. And if you go there, uh, you can find these uh, information. I mean, you can find also this information in Global Footprint Network website because there is a section for, uh, let's say, educational uh, material. Um, and we have had over the past two years, more than 5,000 students who have been uh, studying using these, uh, this module. The other tool that we have developed is a footprint calculator for the administrations of the university, because we have also realized that in many cases, university teach about sustainability. Some university also act as like consultant on sustainability matter, but most universities don't really measure their own sustainability or like implement uh, sustainable practices. So we develop a tool to help them uh, assess their own footprint and start, uh, let's say, um, mitigating, if you want, their own, uh, their own footprint. The, so th these are all resources that are available. I mean, in, in less than... In about one year time, because we released the calculator on April 1st, 2022, we, we had, I believe, more than 120 universities from 22 EU countries or also outside EU that have at least started to uh, pilot the use of these, um, of these two. So I think this is also a resource that if someone like from any university is listening today, maybe they, they may be interested in either using our teaching material or using this tool uh, in, their, in their university. I want to say something uh, about what we were mentioning before. Now, these like in, in the 70s uh, or uh, a few decades ago in Ireland, the model was to rent uh, the TV. Um, I'm sure that a good half, if not three quarter, if not 90% of the people who are listening to us today may be thinking that I'm crazy, okay? Or that we are both crazy, I don't know. <laughs> but if that's the case, I think like a very important question that I would like everyone to reflect on is why the idea of renting today a TV sounds so crazy today. And why do you think that this is the case? What has happened in these two decades that have shifted us from believing that was an okay model in thinking that that is a completely unacceptable model because most people will think oh, that's completely like in, like stupid. It's like 
um, it's really a, a no, no, no. So I, I think it's worth reflecting. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm right, but what I want to put in people's mind is the question, why it was the norm 20 years ago and why it sounds so strange and out of reality nowadays. Yes, I think that you give people some homework to do. That's always a good thing to do. <laughs> For me, I think this is just about introducing the topics and putting them in, in, grounding them in reality, really, isn't it? Like it's that thing of, you know, we both wear glasses. What's the environmental impact of that? Do we recycle our old glasses? Are, are we followers of fashion? Are we people who have 60 pairs of fashion glasses? You know, even just conversations about stuff like that, I just find has to come into the ring really it isn't just about well I've got an electric car and I grow some of my own veg it's about the clothes we wear it's about how often I get a haircut it's about you know it's it's those kind of conversations that I think we need to be having and and we've sort of put sustainability and climate change over there and I don't think we're weaving it into our day-to-day -day lives as much as we really should um, which is why I just find all the work that you do there absolutely fascinating. It's brilliant. Yeah, and, and imagine from, from my side, sometimes I'm feeling that I'm not doing things that are tangible enough uh, because, I mean, as a researcher, mm. I, I think I love questions. Yeah. And, and what I ask people is, do question everything is told to you. Yeah. Don't just believe that something is uh, good because someone is telling you that it's good. I mean, if you look, for instance, stupid example, advertisement of companies nowadays, like 90% of the companies are sustainable. Mm -hmm. They claim they are sustainable. Well, don't believe that by default. Yeah. Always challenge what you are told and always ask why this is the way it is. I mean, I really do not pretend to have any, to hold any truth. I have views yeah. which may be wrong. Uh, and all I ask is people to challenge their own views. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just assume that you are right yeah. because you have always been used to do things in a certain way. Yeah. That that is uh, what really we need to do. We need to question everything, question ourselves, and really think about whether the current model is the correct one or not. Just to tell people to watch out for June the fifth for the launch of the twenty twenty three date. Thank you so much. I really You're welcome. It. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. All of the links to all the materials that Alessandro mentioned in the conversation are included in the notes. If you have any ideas or comments or observations, any conversations you'd like us to have, please feel free to get in touch. Secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.